Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com? Here is this week's teaching. Hey, man, good morning. Did everybody thaw out this week? Yeah, spring here? Nope, we're still frozen. All right. Let me say welcome to the Church Trail 7, welcome to the guys over at the prison and our friends at the jail. We are so happy that you chose to worship God with us today. We're in a series where we are walking through the life of Christ. It's called Jesus, period. Uh, This last part of the series here, I don't know if you know this, but Easter is right around the corner. Um, And so we're going to spend this, the rest of this series kind of talking about the last few days of Jesus's life. And we're walking up to his death and resurrection. Um, And so I really hope that you'll lean in for the next few weeks, that that you will really pay attention to what God has to teach you through this, because I believe that it is incredibly valuable and important. So the story we're talking about today is uh, right before Jesus dies, he meets with his disciples in what we call the upper room. Um, doesn't mean it was upstairs. It means it was above uh, something important. And so Jesus is meeting in the upper room with his disciples at a table. Have you ever noticed how many of the stories we've focused on in the life of Jesus he's at tables. That was just kind of a primary part of his ministry. Today we are at the table, and so let's watch this video from Israel. I am standing on the roof of the upper room, or what they believe that Jesus gathered his disciples before he died. Um, Down there is a little bit loud, so I came up here, got the city of Jerusalem behind me. Deep below me, a few floors, is what they believe is the grave of King David. The reason why I was called the upper room is because they were above King David's grave in the in the room above um, that grave. So I'll read the story from Matthew 26. It says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare the Passover meal for you? As you go into the city, he told them, You will see a certain man. Tell them, The teacher says, My time has come, and I will eat the Passover meal with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus told them and prepared the Passover meal there. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, am I the one, Lord? He replied, one of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me. For the Son of Man must die as the scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas, the one who would betray him, also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, Take this and eat it, for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Yes! So uh, that video was hard to film because there were people walking. Did you guys see the guy behind who's like, 
Yeah. Anyway, uh, so today we're talking about the story of Jesus in the upper room, and I think it reminds us of Jesus's, what, what did he prioritize? What did he do in this world? Jesus did not come to the world to start a religion. Jesus came to the world to start a relationship, a relationship with you, a relationship with his, what we call the bride of Christ or the body of Christ, the church. In Christian community, we call this koinonia. Koinonia is where we get the word communion. It means participation in spiritual community. Koinonia, it, it, it means we're not just doing the surface level, shallow, small talk relationship stuff. We're going deep. We're not just even getting to know each other on a, a physical or a mental level. We are getting people to know people on a spiritual level. This is why Jesus did so much of his ministry at tables, in community, in, in homes, in, in small groups. Yeah, he did the big group gatherings and he preached to the crowds, but he also met with a few people. And then those few people met with a few more people. And then those few people met with a few more people. And it was actually these small groups of mentorship that ended up launching this ministry or launching this movement that we call today Christianity, it, it changed the world. In a conversation that Jesus was having and he was talking about who is in this community, Jesus said this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. I think this is one of the most terrifying verses in scripture. What's it saying? It's saying that there will be people who call themselves Christians who are not actually Christians. There will be people who label themselves a follower of Christ who won't actually follow Christ. If you are still looking to morality, or if you are still trying to be good enough to be adopted into God's family, to, to get into heaven, then you're really just doing what everybody else in the world is doing, right? Right? I mean, that's, that's our whole, that's our world's prescription to heaven, if you're good enough. If you ever ask somebody, will you be in heaven today? They, they usually respond and say something like, well, I try. I'm trying my best. I, I think I'm a good person. To which Jesus would say, no, you're not. There is no amount of morality or religious ceremony that can adopt you into God's kingdom that can allow you to get into his family. It's just not going to cut it. What do we need? We need grace, which is what Jesus is about to show us in his death on the cross. We need somebody else to do what we cannot, and that is be perfect. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. In these stories, as we walk through the life of Christ, we saw a lot of religious leaders who did a lot in God's name, yet had no relationship with him. What does Jesus say? Why did he tell them that some will, he will tell some people to depart? He says, because I never knew you. Because I never had a relationship with you. It's not because you weren't moral enough. 
It's not because you sin too many times. Depart from me because I never knew you. This is reality of our lives today. We don't have time for relationships. Can't I just write a check? Can't I just delegate it to somebody else? We don't have time for relationships. We got kids sports to go to and, and we've got Netflix shows to binge. We don't have time for relationships. Our priority is us, my comfort, my activities. Our priorities are all out of whack. We've, we've put relationships before or after viewership. We've traded table talk for TikTok. Took me some time to come up with that rhyme, so... We don't prioritize relationships. We talk all the time. The example we always give is about how table time has just decreased over time. And we spend so little time in intentional community around tables. That's why we always say cell phones at tables kill families. Why? Because it reveals a priority problem. Communion is table time. Communion is a statement of intention. It says that we will commune with each other. We will linger at the table because the family that eats together stays together. We will make this a priority and we will make it a focus. We will make it sacred. So parents, this is the first obvious step in this. Mentor your children at the table. In other words, don't just show at the table to get some food in your bellies and then move on. Plan a conversation. Come to the table with some questions that you plan to ask. Ask something like, what's something that God is teaching you right now? Is there anything that you're struggling with? Do you have any doubts? When's the last time you ask somebody, how's your soul? Come to community with intentional questions that can take you deeper than just the normal shallow stuff that the world is so used to. Because the heart of the Last Supper is intentional community. Not just happens to happen. Intentional. Go out of your way. Make it happen. Jesus was mentoring his disciples and he was showing them how to mentor. He was setting an example of how to mentor others. When I started doing funerals uh, as a pastor, I was blindsided by how many people came to the end of their lives. Most people who die are old people. And how many old people are still ashamed of things that they did in their past or things that happened to them in their past or, wait, or, or, think, or different bad things that happened. They just kind of hide them. They bury them. Like, what, what are you still holding on to this for? What are you still ashamed of? What happens in funerals is I'll sit down with the family of the person who died and I'll say, tell me their story. You know what they start doing? They start telling me the highlights. All the like really nice, pretty moments that happen. I'm like, well, no, 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 no. I want the whole story. And so many of them, them have no idea the true story of their mom and dad. We hide that. We protect it. We're ashamed of it. 
If we truly believe that God works all things for the good of those who love him and who are called, called according to his purpose, then we have no reason to be ashamed of our past. What we are proud of is what God has done in us as a result of our past and what he can do with us in the future because of our past. It doesn't mean we're proud of our mistakes. It doesn't mean that we would repeat them if we had the chance. It means that we believe that God can use them. We're not ashamed of where we've come from. We allow God to use it to bring us together. Don't come to the end of your life still ashamed because you haven't allowed God to use your experiences. Because you haven't allowed God to use your pain. Because those people who come to their end of the life and they're able to help somebody else as a result of their pain are not ashamed of their pain anymore. Because now they're able to look at it and recognize what God did with it. And now, rather than being ashamed, I celebrate who God is and what he has done through me and what he has done with me. That is the heart of communion. It's building each other up. It's intentionally sharing what we've learned, sharing what we've been through so we can help each other become who God created us to be. Have you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians? It's a book written from the Apostle Paul to one of the first churches, the church in Corinth. And Paul recognizes that this church has all kind of fragments and they're divided over some things that have happened in their past. And some people are saying we should believe this and we, we, we believe this theology and we believe this theology and we follow this leader and we follow this leader and they start to separate and divide. And so Paul writes the church in Corinth a letter and he says, I appeal to you, live in harmony with each other. The heart of the problem in Corinth was a lack of community, was fragmentation. So then in chapter 11, Paul says this, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And here's his prescription for the division. When you, or this, is what he's, this is the reason he's saying there's division. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. What does that have to do with it, Paul? Because the Lord's Supper for them was not just a ceremony that happened at the end of a church service. The Lord's Supper for them was intentionally coming, coming together for a meal. It's much more like what happens in our life groups than what happens here on Sunday mornings. So what's Paul's advice? Paul uses Jesus' teachings about communion, about koinonia, about the Lord's Supper to heal them to help them to move on past their fragmentation. He said, some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing it with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. You just treat the meal like it's just something quick to get your fill or to get your buzz or whatever you're trying to get out of the meal and then you just move on. It's got nothing to do with the community. If we don't take table time seriously, time to get to know each other, time to fellowship and time to build each other up and time to get to know God at the table, then our actions and our lives will show it. It will turn up in our lives as division, as anger. God's instruction for us is to love God and love people, but that's not natural. So we've got to be intentional to make it happen. He says, love God and love people. We're tempted to love self and love pleasure. We've got to do something to change what comes naturally. And communion, authentic community 
at the table, communion changes us. It changes us vertically in our relationship with God, and it changes us horizontally in our relationship with each other. As we become the community that God created us to be, we learn how to love God more. It helps us vertically, and we learn how to love each other more. And we take up our cross. We participate in the communion in a whole new way when we have learned what it looks like to live in a sacrificial community. Did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus asked 307 questions? And then on that slide, I added the mind-blown emoji. That's what that means. Welcome to Church 307. That's what that says. Welcome. Why did Jesus ask 307 questions in the Gospels? It is because he did not just come to the table and small talk about what happened that day. Jesus came to the table with intentional questions that would lead to deeper community and a deeper level of maturing. And he knew that that questions are not just small talk. Questions are the best way to teach somebody because it's not just lecturing. It creates a two-way, give-and-take conversation. And Jesus knew what he was doing. This wasn't an accident. Jesus was the best leader the world has ever seen. John 10, 10 says, or maybe it's 10, 11. John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. And I've always read this to think that means he's a gentle shepherd, right? He's a kind shepherd. Until I recognized, I was reading this passage one day and I said, wait a minute, a couple verses earlier, it says that it's talking about good pastures. I'm like, well, they're not gentle pastures. They're not kind pastures. They're good because they produce a lot of fruit, because they're effective, because they're good at what they do. Jesus isn't the good, he is kind, he is gentle, but what this verse is saying is he is good at it. If you want to see good leadership, do what Jesus is doing. He is a good leader. The Greek word for good, for good in this verse is kalos, which literally means quality or fertile, or rich. That's what kind of shepherd, that's what kind of leader Jesus is. If you want to know what quality leadership looks like, look at Jesus, the best leader in history. One of the people in my life that have demonstrated this for me was Jason Canagator. Jason Canagator has since passed away, but when I first got this job and I was very regularly overwhelmed, had no idea what I was doing, pretending like I knew everything and knew nothing. Jason Canagator could see it. Everybody could kind of see it, but he could see it. And he said, hey, Mike, let's go to breakfast. And he started taking, taking me to breakfast. But he didn't just take me to breakfast. As somebody who's had quite a bit of leadership experience, he starts asking me questions. He says things like, okay, what are your motivations behind this thing that you're doing? Or or what's your strategy here? What's your plan for this? Why did you make that decision? And I start to get defensive, right? Because naturally we're used to the shallow small talk breakfasts. Like let's just talk about the details of the week and the weather and, and that type of stuff. 
And we sit down to breakfast and he starts asking me, he's like, okay, what were the results of the last time you did that? Or what feedback have you received? And I'm just like, what, what have you heard? What, what, do you hate it? Do you hate me? What am I doing wrong? What's, why are you yelling at me? He's, like, I'm, he's not yelling at me. He didn't, that's not how it went. But immediately I'm like, this isn't normal. This isn't how conversations go. It's not what I'm used to. What's he doing? He's mentoring me. He's helping me to think critically about things that I'm not thinking about. He's helping me to see things that I am not seeing. And he does this routinely. And also in these conversations, I'm able to ask him follow-up questions. I'm able to ask him, okay, if, if that wasn't the best decision, now that we're recognizing as you asked me the question, I can pretty easily see that. Have you ever experienced something like this? Have you been through something? And Jason was able to get incredibly transparent with me and tell me about his failures. Tell me about things that he's tried that didn't go well and, and tell me about some hard things that happened to him. So now instead of repeating all of his mistakes, I'm able to learn from them. If you're being mentored, ask a lot of questions. Don't expect they have all the answers, but ask a lot of questions. Because it, it was in this, and he never came up to me and he was like, hey, can I be your mentor? No, that would have been awkward. But what did he do? He said, let's have coffee. Let's have breakfast. Let's build a relationship. And I'm so thankful that he did. I, I would not have grown as much as I have. Still got a lot of growing to do, but if it weren't for him. It weren't for other people in my life who took time to reach out and give me what they could. Give me their life experiences. Give me their wisdom. That's generosity. He also paid for the meal, so that's generosity as well. But the impact of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away. Are you hoarding your experiences? Are you hoarding your wisdom? Are you so ashamed of your past and the mistakes that you've made and the places that you've been and the pain that you've experienced that you're just keeping it to yourself? Then you are not becoming the shepherd that God called you to be. When Jesus has communion with his disciples in the upper room, he has just amazed the masses. And people are saying, who is this guy? He's a celebrity by now. Who can teach like this? But Jesus was also a shepherd. So he would get together with his sheep. He would make sure that they were fed. He would protect them. Christians, I think there is a lot of us today who have been spiritual consumers for a long time, who've been sitting on the sideline, who've been, who've been sheep being taken care of by shepherds in the body of Christ for a long time. And you've stopped there. And you've thought that's enough. That's not enough. I mean, it's enough to be in God's kingdom. It's enough to be adopted into his family, but it's not enough to become the person that God created you to be. For many of us, it's time for us to move from just being sheep to being shepherds. Jesus wants to pass the shepherding baton on to you. He, he wants to teach you how to do what he has done. But what does that switch require? How do I become more useful to God in building his kingdom? 
Here at New Life, we use tiers of leadership to talk about this, and this is how we determine who fills what positions in, in leadership here at the church. And so we talk about it like this. We say, first, you have to learn how to lead yourself. And this is what most teenagers are doing, hopefully. Teenagers are learning how to be responsible, how to take care of themselves, how to show up to places on time, how to organize their life. Hopefully, by the time you get to college, you've learned some of these things. You've learned how to be responsible. But then Christians, we kind of take this to the next level. We also say that as teenagers, you should also be learning how to feed yourself spiritually. Because so many Christians think, think it's their responsibility to show up on Sunday morning and listen and hope the pastor is good enough that I get all the feeding I need on Sunday morning. It's not going to happen. I'm not that good. If you're just relying on my words on Sunday morning, you are not going to become the person that God created you to be. Part of leading self is setting up some routines and some habits in your life that God can teach you in other ways than just one hour on Sunday mornings. This is, this is who you are now. Make it a part of your life. Build it into your routine, into your daily, daily, daily habits. And while you're on this journey, don't just expect you're going to do it by sitting in rows. It is important to find a mentor. Everyone needs a mentor in this leading self process. The people I know who experience the most growth at, in the quickest amount, shortest amount of time are like leadership squirrels. You know, squirrels are always gathering more and more nuts. It's like, I, I think this is what a lot of great leaders are. They're mentorship squirrels. They're looking for somebody to mentor them in everything that they do. If they're going after some goal, they will find somebody who can mentor them to help them reach that goal faster. And YouTube isn't enough, right? You can learn a lot on YouTube now. I'm pretty sure you could learn to build a house on YouTube. Maybe not. Some carpenter is about to throw something at me. But you cannot learn how to build your life on YouTube. Because mentorship requires much more than just teaching. Teaching is just one-way communication. That's what this is on Sunday mornings. It's not enough. That's what YouTube is. You need a two-way conversation. You need somebody who can recognize something in your life that is out of order and tell you to give you some advice about how to change it. To bring up a question that you would not have asked yourself. You need somebody who has wisdom who can ask you questions that you don't even need to, don't even know that you need to be asked. That's what mentorship can give you. So we seek it out. We look for somebody who's got wisdom that we need and we ask them to teach us. And then the danger here is thinking, it just keep staying in that process of mentorship hoarding and I need more and more mentors, but I never become a mentor. You can't stop there. You have to move on to the second step of leadership, and that's leading others. Look for ways to influence people. Find some young person. I don't, maybe you're brand new to Christian faith, but you're less new than somebody else. You're, you're not as young as somebody else spiritually. And take somebody under your wing. 
Get intentional about it. Jesus, God himself, regularly was in the homes of his disciples. God, aren't you too big for this? Aren't you too good for this? At some point, Christians, we have to say, I can't go any further until I'm leading someone beside me. If you have ever struggled with anything that you don't struggle with anymore, then you should be a mentor. If you've ever learned anything, if you've ever gotten out of debt, if you've ever lost weight or learned how to cook or been promoted in a job, if you've ever gotten married or raised kids, if you've ever read a book of the Bible, if you've done pretty much anything, you have something that you can teach somebody. It's time to say, I can go no further until so- there's somebody that I am leading, until there's somebody I'm pouring this wisdom into. Don't be okay with just consuming. It's time to give. I think the best example that I've seen of this in a long time is what Nick Rassi is doing right now in God and Griddles. So watch this. Good morning, church. My name is Nick Rassi. Today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about mentorship, a little bit about God and Griddles and helping out our teens. Uh, For those of you that don't know, we offer here at New Life a chance for our teenagers to get into a life group slash Bible study called God and Griddles. We started this last fall on a Saturday mornings. Most of our teens, well, go figure, they couldn't get up in the mornings, and so we didn't have as many teens there as we wanted to. Um, This spring, we started offering it Monday nights. And since then, we're seeing about 15 teenagers show up regularly to dive into God's word. Um, We also are offering pancakes, hence God and Griddles. Um, Teenagers, of course, love food, so breaking bread together with them is awesome. Um, We spend an hour every evening just getting into God's word. And uh, one of the things that uh, is important to me is making sure that our teens have a chance to grow deeper in their faith. When I look back at my life, I'm not going to look back at the end of my life and think, I wish I would have made more money. I wish I would have had more power, more fame, more toys. No, for sure, I'm going to look back and hope that I encouraged our teens to grow deeper in their faith in Christ. Um, For you, I hope that you have a chance to look at who you can mentor at our church. There's a lot of need, whether that be teenagers, whether it be our kids ministry, um, just people in general that you have a chance to mentor. Thanks for listening. If I had a teenager, I would rearrange every part of my schedule to make sure my teens were at God and Griddles every single week. Because the benefit of having that, a Nick Rassi speak into the life of my teenagers, to teach them scripture, to give them wisdom. There is nothing more important than that. I don't care what activity or whatever else is going on in life. That has to be a priority for our teenagers. And I hope that it just continues to grow. But a lot of people are watching that and we're like, I don't, I'm no, I'm no Nick Rassi. You do not have to be Nick Rassi to do what Nick Rassi is doing. All of us are called. We, Last year, we had a volunteer, we call them leaders, uh, who was trying to decide if she was going to step up and lead in New Life Kids or not. And she was on the fence for a while because she had experienced a lot of pain in her life and made some bad decisions. At one point, she had attempted suicide. And she felt so guilty about where she 
was that she didn't feel like she could lead where she is. But eventually she got up the courage and she started volunteering in New Life Kids. And, and she is teaching this class just after a kid has heard the message. It's an older kid in New Life Kids. And as a result of the message, he told this leader that he was thinking about committing suicide. And what a God moment. That this person who was insecure about her past insecure about who she is, is now able to use this pain in her life. God is now able to use it for good. And she is able to have a whole new perspective in this conversation that I could never have with this child. She's able to have a a conversation with this child and his parents. And what a beautiful thing that God was able to use pain to do good. And that's what he'll do with you. If you'll just allow yourself to be used, like Nick Rassi or any of the other leaders in New Life Kids or New Life Youth. And then eventually, as somebody learns to lead others and they grow in that, eventually they move to the next step that we call lead leaders. At New Life, we call these leaders of leaders, we call them coaches. If you are a leader in one of our ministries, then you have a coach assigned to mentor you. And actually, if I could just be incredibly honest about why I'm preaching this message, it's because our ministry model fails hardcore if we do not have people leading others and if we do not have people leading leaders. Like we are entirely dependent on new lifers taking a next step into leadership and deciding I'm not going any farther until I'm leading somebody beside me. Unless we have new lifers who are moving from sheep and becoming shepherds. Because we lead a lot of people to Christ in this church. There are a lot of new believers in this congregation. And if they are going to take next steps, our ministry models relies on other new lifers coming alongside of them. And it is so beautiful for me. I go to City Brew Coffee like almost every day. And almost every single time I walk in there, I see one of you meeting with another one of you. I almost every time. Because you've taken this seriously. It's not just happening down in New Life Kids. It's not just happening in New Life Youth. It's not just happening in life groups. It's happening when I never know about it. In conversations, at dinners, and at coffee. Go out of your way to make this a priority. So that you can do what God called you to do. To ask yourself this question. Who am I mentoring? Literally make a list. Decide today that I'm going to be intentional about finding people to mentor and I'm going to be intentional about finding people who can mentor me. I'm going to go out of my way. I'm not going to hope that it happens naturally. I'm going to make it happen.